Well, if you've been to any store, you recognize that for the past almost month now, we are in that time of year where everything is Christmas. And we get to hear all the stories and all the songs that come with it, the stories of those unlikely characters. You've got Rudolph, you've got Frosty, you've got Scrooge, you've got Kevin, you've got Buddy the Elf, you've got Ralphie, you've got the Grinch, you've got Hans Gruber, and above all, you have Mariah. Mariah, who only wants you for Christmas. And while those stories can bring us joy, and some of you are like, I thought the answer was Jesus. I will get there. I promise. Yes, yes, yes. Um, while those stories can bring us joy, they bring us laughter. Only one story brings uh, peace on earth, brings goodwill to all. That's the story of Jesus being born to Mary and to Joseph. And as we make our way to Christmas Eve, we're going to look at three different events that take place in the Gospel of Luke before Jesus is born. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, you can pull those out to Luke chapter 1. Um, the words are, of course, be on the screen here in front of me. And we're going to take a look at the story of Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. This is verse 5 that I'm going to start with. Apologize, I printed it at 8. That is my mistake, Brooke. Um, we're going to read 5 that you can look up here. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. That his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. The first thing we got to know about this story of Jesus is that these events happened at a definite time. They're real. These aren't fairy tale or Christmas traditions or clever stories. They are real, real people living in a real time, doing real things. Things. And this King Herod was an actual real ruler, and he was, at the long, he was at the end of a very long and terrible reign. He was known throughout the, the, the area for his spectacular building programs, but he was known even more so for his paranoid cruelty. He executed many, many people, including members of his own family. And if you can remember the story, this King Herod is going to pop up again when the wise men visit from the east. And it would be one thing to think, well, if this story was just about a king, if it was about someone famous, that might make sense. But we also see mentioned here in the text is a certain priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who are two very unlikely and very unexpected characters. Now, the text calls them righteous and obedient, which doesn't mean that they were without sin. It means that when they did sin, they followed the law and they made the right sacrifices and did their best to live by the law, trusting in God and his promises. But the text also tells us that while they were righteous in God's eyes, in the eyes of the people, they were stigmatized by their barrenness. Because at that time, without a male heir or without a child, the line was considered over and the blame always fell on the woman. And the man too felt shame and grief. Text continues and says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn the incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Again, real people, real times, real history, those priestly divisions, including the division of Abijah, which uh, Zechariah was a part of and belonged to, you can see in First Chronicles chapters 23 and 24 when they separate that. And according to the custom of the priesthood, these lots, this way of casting dice kind of thing so that they would see who it is, would determine who would do what from the common priesthood. 
And over the years, the number of priests continued to multiply. And some scholars say that in the time of Jesus, there were probably somewhere around 20,000 different priests. So when the lot falls to serve like Zechariah got, that might only come once in a common priest's lifetime. Which means this was probably the biggest event of Zechariah's life. This is a tremendous privilege, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, an event filled with an enormous amount of anticipation. Now, a little bit of uh, Old Testament understanding here. According to the law of Moses, incense was offered to God on the golden altar every morning and every evening. We see those instructions in Exodus chapter 30. And they used to cast several lots to determine who would do what at the sacrifice. And the first lot determined who would cleanse the altar, who would clean it, prepare its fire. The second would determine who would kill the morning sacrifice and then sprinkle the altar, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense. And then this third lot is the one that they're talking about right here, who would come and offer the incense. Again, this was the most privileged of all duties that these common priests could do. Those who received the first and second lots, they got to do a little bit of it, but this one was the main event. And the worshipers gathered outside the temple at this moment, morning, sunrise, and at dusk, and they would watch these three because two would get to do the little duties and then the one would do the main one. They'd set the burning coals, the other guy would arrange the incense, then they would leave, and then one guy got to do the main event. And the altar would be right there in front of that big curtain. And if you remember reading at the, the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, that curtain is what separates people from coming into that holy place. Only one man, the high priest, was allowed to one day a year go behind the curtain and make sacrifice for the people, and they called that day the Day of Atonement. But this is right in front of it. This is where Zechariah would be. And you might be thinking, why is, he, why is he going? What's he going in there to do? Well, he's burning that incense, and he's praying. And if you look in the New Testament or you even look in the Old Testament, incense and prayer seem to always go together text continues in verse 11 and says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now I should point out, I forgot about this, but in Leviticus 10, these two guys named Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, they... They improperly burned the incense before the Lord on that altar, and so they were struck dead. And so naturally, this incident led the rabbis in Zechariah's day to teach that if any priest burned the incense improperly, he would be struck dead. The angel of death would appear, and then it would be over for you. So naturally, he's probably a little troubled and fearful as he had been taught he is about to die because there is the angel. However, the message the angel brings is not one of judgment or death, but one of a blessing, one of new life to come. He says, you're going to give birth, you're going to have a son. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We see six things here, right? This child who is going to be John the baptizer, 
is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus himself will say about John that among those born of woman, there has not arisen one greater than John the baptizer. He'll be a Nazarite. That's what that whole, he won't be drinking wine or fermented drink means. That's a Nazarite vow. You can learn about that in, uh, in Numbers chapter 6. Ordinarily, that's a vow you take voluntarily. Only three times do we see in Scripture someone get it. Uh, someone take this vow before they were even born. One was Samson. One was Samuel. And then now John here. We're told that he will be filled with the Spirit. Is indicating this specific prophetic role that he is going to have. John will be the first prophet in hundreds of years. In fact, he's considered, many people consider him that bridge between the Old Testament prophets, John the baptizer, and then Jesus. And the only thing different is all these men before were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who is God, then gives the Holy Spirit to all believers, which is a sermon for another time, my friend. He's going to begin a repentance movement, which is what any good prophet does. He's going to be in the spirit of Elijah, meaning he's for the people of Israel, and he's making them ready. He's going to point out that the Messiah is coming. This is quite a special announcement. But Zechariah asks in the next verse, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. According to tradition, Zechariah calling himself old here means he's over 60 years old for him and his wife. Now, it isn't that Zacharias doesn't want to believe this. He does. It's just simply that he feels too good to be true. And he's probably protected himself from the disappointment by not setting his expectations too high. Because if he lived with his wife and that stigmatism of having no child, to hear something like this would probably be very difficult. Now, it's not implied that Zechariah prayed for a son when he was in that golden altar. If he was there, he was there to do a job. That was to pray for the people, the people of Israel, and to pray for the coming Messiah. But this prayer that the angel talks about, guaranteed, is one that Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth had given up on long ago. This response is Zachariah's way of saying, I don't know what you're talking about, what prayer. I didn't pray for a son. My wife and I are old now. We gave up on that prayer a long time ago. And sometimes we pray for something for a long, long time. Maybe it's the salvation of a spouse or of a child to come back. We pray for a calling or a certain ministry or a job that we want. We pray that God would bring a certain special person to us. And after years of heartfelt prayer, it's real easy to give up out of discouragement. These two probably passionately prayed for years for a child to be given to them and just kind of stopped believing that God would answer that prayer. And it's there in that place where we're starting to doubt when prayers go unanswered whether or not God still loves and God still cares for us. See, Zechariah looked at the circumstances first and what God does last. When we start to live life logically instead of by faith, we fall into a dangerous spot. But when God is real, 
he is real, then there's nothing logical about taking human expectations and circumstances and placing them before what God wants. And this is the place in the text where I stopped. This is the place in the text where I would invite you to put yourself in that situation, and maybe you already have, of waiting for a prayer to be answered. And I wish you, I could tell you today that the lesson here in this text is that if you just keep praying, God's going to give you what, he want, what you want. And I hope he does. But I don't know if, that's, if that should be something we take away from this text. I think the lesson we learn from Zechariah here is that maybe we're supposed to see that it's not our wants, but our wants, the things that we want from God, are not to become more than who we are. What I mean is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were called righteous. They remain righteous even though they did not ever get what they wanted. Their trust, their relationship with God was not built on only getting what they want. They were described as righteous, but you better believe they experienced sadness and shame, feelings of inadequacy, ostracized, probably never felt whole as a couple. But it did not ever stop them from being God's own people. And they didn't keep being righteous and doing what God asked them to do so that, that God would eventually give them what they wanted. They did what was right because that's who they are. To believe even when it's hard. To trust even when it doesn't benefit us. To hold on in love even when we do not immediately get what we want. They waited years, probably 30, 40 years and had probably even given up. But don't forget what the angel said. God has heard your prayer. That is the promise. And if you think it was hard for, 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 for Elizabeth, think about how hard it was for God, who loves us completely. This text showed me to think about things from God's perspective. How hard it is for him to say, I'm going to answer this for you. You just have to hold on. For God to say, I hear you praying that, but that is not what you need. That is not what is best for you. Us praying and God saying, now is not the right time. Now is not the right time, but wait, my child. Be patient and hold on. I love you, and I know what is best. Don't give up. Don't listen to that liar who says, I do not care about you or hear you. Listen to my voice. Seek my voice, my ways, because good is coming. The voice of God says that I have promised that all things, all things will work to good. Not some things are going to be good and some things are going to be bad, but all will work for good to those who love me. Angel comes to Gabriel and says this, which, by the way, <laughs> I am Gabriel. I don't know how to say that in an angel voice. I practice. I feel like I rushed it, but I think it sounds very powerful. Because then he gets like, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, and you will not be able to speak until this day happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. See, Gabriel comes and reminds Zechariah of who he is and where he's come from. 
there's a big contrast, I think, besides, I'm an old man, and I stand in the presence of God, I am Gabriel. Which holds more weight, do you think? That angel voice, right? Our turn again. Which holds more weight in our lives? What we hear, what we see, what people tell us we should be, what our own voice tries to convince us of, or the very words of God which has defined you, the very words of God which comes and speaks to you life and love and purpose and truth and peace. That's why Gabriel says, I've got good news because it's nothing but good news to Zechariah that not only is he going to have a son, but that this son is going to play a significant role in God's plan of redemption. That's what it means to preach the gospel, to bring good news to people who need it. Now, without sounding like a direct TV commercial, you realize, of course, that if there's no Zechariah, then there's no John the Baptist. And if there's no John the Baptist, no one's announcing Jesus coming. And if no one's announcing Jesus coming, then the, all of the Old Testament prophecies aren't fulfilled. And if the Old Testament prophecies aren't fulfilled, then Jesus isn't really the Son of God. And if he's not the Son of God, then he didn't die for your sins. And if he didn't die for your sins, you don't end up in a ditch, you end up in hell. But this is the good news. God has called John the Baptist to come forth to point to the Messiah, which he did. Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived and died for you. And there is nothing that will take that away. That's what we believe. And when we don't hold on to those promises of God, it doesn't destroy the promise, but we surely miss out on quite a bit, just like Zechariah did when he didn't get to be able to speak about all the joy that he had text concludes and says, meanwhile, the people are waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. He comes out. He's not speaking to them. They realize he's seen a vision in the temple because he's making signs to them, but he's remaining unable to speak. They were waiting for that last little blessing before they could go home after all this praying. We don't get any information on what happened. We just keep going in the text here in 23. And then it says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This isn't a virgin birth. They get pregnant in a normal way, and Elizabeth isn't hiding her pregnancy. She's gone for five months, which was before she would even be showing, to spend time with the Lord and to meditate on these promises that were made to her and her husband. And above all, God has removed that shame, that disgrace from her. And I'll conclude with this. There are times in our lives and in our life together as God's people when problems will mount and it's difficult to see the way forward, when it seems like all hope for the future has reached a, a dead end, your prayers aren't being heard, the change we have waited to see isn't coming. But in the Bible, we are encountered by a God for whom there are no dead ends, detours perhaps, but no dead ends. In Scripture, we find a God who's always working for good. Even when we doubt or mess up, we have a God who specializes in making a way through wilderness, through fire, through whatever, and opens up that future, especially when none seems possible. God proves faithful by working in those unexpected ways. And I love that it's about Elizabeth and Zechariah 
because it means he chooses unlikely people, which means he chooses you and I too. Despite our weaknesses, our doubts, our resistance, he promises to work in and through us in his spirit. And so in this Advent season, as we are looking forward to God coming again, we go in hope, we go in faith, and we know that against all odds, it is God who brings life to the barren places in our hearts and souls. It is God who declares peace, joy, love, and hope. Amen.